Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. If you did not know, I have a new book. It's out. Well, it's not really out. It's available for pre-order and it'll be out September 7th. So you can get yours now. You can click link in the description or any of the bios of my social media pages that we call it, profiles. I think that's what we call it, to order yours now. It is called Traumatized, Identify, Understand, and Cope with PTSD and Emotional Stress. It's my newest book, baby. I hope you like her. I'm very excited to get her out into the world. So get yours today. Now today, like most of the days, we have 10 questions. And it's funny because there's always kind of a little bit of a theme, but I feel like more and more I get a, a bunch of questions about just basic stuff around therapists, like what we think, how we react in session and stuff. And so maybe I do kind of like a a video, maybe like seven things you should know about a therapist or something like that. I don't know. I'm trying to put that together, but you let me know if you would be interested in that in the comments. And without further ado, let's jump into question number one. It says, hey, Katie, I was wondering if a therapist would know if their patient isn't feeling that great or something's bothering them or their anxiety is a bit high. Would you still continue with what you had planned or would you do something different? People have other convers or other questions to build onto this, but I want to talk about this specifically first. Now, yes, the short answer is yes, a therapist would know that you aren't feeling great, but they might not if they don't know you that well. So if a therapist has only seen you like a couple of times, you know, maybe you had two sessions or three sessions, it can take us a while to get a baseline. And what I mean by that is if I've seen you each week for two months or, or longer, you know, let's say even a year or something, I've gotten to know you and what's kind of your quote unquote norm. So if anything shifts from that, if you seem extra talkative and energized or anxious, like I've had patients who usually sit and relax back and then sometimes they'll come in and sit on the edge of the, ca the couch, you know, barely perched fidgeting, um, we'll notice things like that. We'll notice those shifts, but we have to get a baseline first. And so if you've just started seeing someone, they might not notice or, or no, to, to shift things. But if you've been seeing them for a little while, yes, they will. And most therapists or myself personally, I guess, I, I don't really know if everybody else feels this way, I would assume so. But I would still continue to work towards our goals, but I would mention what I'm noticing in session and see if there are other things we need to do. Maybe let's say a patient's usually relaxed, like I said, and then they're perched on the edge of the couch, fidgeting and super anxious. I might shift some of my homework or tools and techniques that I offer to them to give them more assistance with their anxiety. Let's say maybe we were focusing more on the like lethargy of their depression, and their difficulty to stay motivated. Those might not be as helpful this week or month or whatever as maybe a different set of tools. And so I might shift the ways that I offer help and resources, but I wouldn't really completely change things, but I would be curious about it. And maybe, you know, you don't know what you're going to learn. I've had patients who always appeared one way. And then when they finally 
I don't know, kind of like let their guard down, they appear differently. Meaning let's, let's just keep on that same example, like super anxious. And before I didn't notice that. And then they tell me, oh no, I always feel like this and I struggle to sleep. And then I learn they have panic attacks. You know, it could open up this whole new can of worms and it might shift the way that we go about our work together or even the goals. But again, it'll be a conversation so that we ensure that it is correct for you and you know what we're doing together and what we're working on and why. And you can ask questions or say that you don't agree with, you know, it's, it's really open for conversation and everything like that. But yes, we would notice, we would know because part of our job, along with looking for patterns of behavior in our life and in relationships, we also look for how we interact in session. You know, are are you super anxious on edge? Are you engaged? Are you not? Are you dissociated? Do you struggle to put words to how you feel all the time? You know, do you stutter? We're trying to pick up on different behavioral things in this session to better assist, right? The more we know, the more we can help. Now, a comment on this said, hi, Katie, I have a similar question. How do you start a conversation when you're anxious? I find that I choke on my words and then the other person doesn't think I have something to say. It builds even before the conversation starts because I texted them the night before because I can't be direct. So I text as an alternative. Hope this makes sense. Thanks for all you do. That totally makes sense. And there are a couple of things. Therapy is my number one. Um, having someone assist you with your anxiety to kind of bring that level down so that you can speak more easily in social situations is going to be key. Having someone who specializes in anxiety would be even better. But today, for today, I think, because part of what will help us with this is actually exposure therapy and doing this more and more, it'll get better and better potentially. Um, but we need some tools and techniques before we go doing that. So don't do that now, but seeing a therapist, I think they're going to, you know, help you better manage how you talk to yourself about social situations and other people and conversations, things like that, give you some ways to calm your system down. So then you can continue to keep trying and get better at it. But for today, I think a great way to help us is to notice what you tell yourself about those situations. When you're going to go talk to someone, are you already telling yourself that you're going to choke on your words and look stupid or sound stupid or whatever kind of, I know that the conversation we have with ourselves is often a shit talking one. So what is it that you're saying? Let's think about that. Pay attention and then use those good old bridge statements I'm talking about all the time where we try to, instead of saying, because we're not going to believe it, we can't just all of a sudden shift to, I'm amazing. This is going to go great. I'm going to talk perfectly. I'm not going to stumble on any words. Our brain's going to be like, mm, highly unlikely. Instead, we're going to use a little bridge statement that's like, I'm open to trying this again and hoping it will get better. And then maybe another bridge statement is something like, I believe that with practice, I can get better at this. I'm just not yet, but I believe it can get better, right? And all these little things, and you might be thinking, well, those aren't really positive statements, but the goal of bridge statements is not for them to be positive. Instead, it's for them to not be negative. And so I would encourage you to pay attention to that conversation and try to shift it because talking more kindly to ourselves about these situations that maybe aren't going as well all the time will help us feel better and make it less likely for us to feel overwhelmed in this in those social you know engagements and we're less likely to choke on our words or stumble does that make sense i hope that makes sense and i hope that helps now the second question on top of this a comment below says hi katie do therapists avoid certain things and wait for us to bring them up i wouldn't say avoid but we definitely wait for you to bring certain things up 
says, I feel like my therapist can tell my emotions and how I'm feeling insanely well, but certain things I feel like she doesn't ask or dig deeper into. So I'm wondering maybe certain things therapists wait for us to say. Uh, yes and no. There are times that as a therapist, I will challenge you. So if you've, if you're like talking around a topic and I, I can tell that that's what you're doing, I'll call that out. I won't ask you directly about this topic. Let's say like I have a ton of patients who will struggle to call abuse abuse for whatever reason. It could be because we min- we want to minimize or invalidate our experience or we've always been told that we're overreacting by, you know, maybe the abuser or another family member or someone who was supposed to help us. Um, so we can talk around it and not want to call it what it is. And I will just call that out. I'll say, I noticed that, you know, we're using a lot of synonyms and and we're we're not really talking about this directly do you know what I mean? You know, and I'll ask them if they know what it means. Sometimes people will be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Or, um, you know, sometimes then they'll say like, I don't want to say that word. It feels, it feels like an overreaction or it feels really overwhelming, right? It can be kind of scary to admit that what we experienced was abuse or that what happened was a trauma. You know, there can be certain words that we just aren't comfortable saying because of maybe our own stigma or belief about that word. And so I will sometimes call it out like that. I wouldn't use the word, but I would just, you know, draw attention to this like avoidance that we're, that I'm seeing. And then when it comes to talking about any kind of trauma specifically, I will guide a patient into it, but I'm not going to bring it up on my own. Does that make sense? Like I definitely have had patients do what I call doorknob confessions when they're like leaving a session. They're like, oh, by the way, I was abused from ages six to 10. And I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll pick that up next week. You know, I'm glad you're able to say that here. And they leave. A lot of people do that, know that it's completely normal. And so I'll take a note. And then the next session, after a quick check-in, I'll say, I'd like to talk about, you know, what you mentioned at the very end of your session last week about uh, abuse, you know? And so I will use the term once they have said it first, but I'm not here to push them to talk about something more quickly than they're ready. I'm not here to, you know, uh, use a word that maybe is so emotionally charged and cause them to dissociate. I will slowly encourage my patients to use the words like real words about what happened because I think there is some power in having language to put to it and it can be very validating for them to hear it from me sometimes that I also agree that that was let's say abuse or something like that. Um but yeah, even though I've suspected certain things or or feel like I kind of know what's happened, I will wait for a patient to bring it up because being a therapist isn't about making assumptions. I feel like assumptions kind of go hand in hand with judgments. And so I like to just, you know, be very aware of what's going on, ask questions to guide the conversation and wait till my patients are pretty much ready to talk about stuff. It's not that I'm not going to challenge them to talk about it, but I'm not going to force them, you know, I'm not going to push them more quickly because we all know how that can be re-traumatizing or overwhelming and make it even harder for us to heal. So yeah. I hope that that makes sense because when it comes to your question, let me go back, just make sure I answered everything. She can probably tell your emotions. Yes, of course, because she knows you well. Says that certain things I feel like she doesn't ask or dig deeper into. She may not feel like you're ready. And at this point, if you are out there and you have a therapist and you wish that they would ask about something, it is completely okay to just say that. Now, I know that that can be really difficult, but it could be, again, like a doorknob confession where you're like, hey, you know, when we skirt around the stuff about my brother, let's say, or something and his drug use. I'm just making up a scenario. I'd like you to push me more to talk about it. Okay, bye. You know, we can do that. And that's fine. Um, Therapists are always walking this fine line of challenging you enough, but not pushing you too far that you're re-traumatized or so upset you can't continue or lose faith in therapy altogether, right? It's this 
this very tricky balance. And so, yeah, I think that that that's great. If you want to say it and bring it up and you want them to talk about it more, you can tell them to. Okay, let's move on to question number two. It says, hi, Katie, are therapists faking themselves in sessions? Good question. My therapist told me that she adapts to each client and is more mindful of how she is with me and is more conscious of being more predictable with me. What does that even mean? That that she's more toned down and not as energetic as she would be with other clients? She said all this as I brought up some things that I've noticed in session about her. I love the way she handled my concerns, but now I'm left wondering if she's being fake and whatever care she has shown is just uh, is just pretend or maybe all therapists are like that. I could bring it up in session, but I'd rather hear your or the community's take on this. <clears throat> That's totally fair. Now, no therapists are not faking themselves in session, but we will cater our responses to you as the patient because some patients need a softer touch. Some of my patients in the past have struggled so much to stay present, meaning they they dissociate so quickly, can feel really overwhelmed. For me to come in as a tough love therapist could be completely overwhelming to their system and cause them to shut down immediately. So we wouldn't get any work done. We wouldn't be able to do any therapy. And therefore, I would start with more of like a, a creating a safe holding environment or like a mothering safe place. And I would be softer in my language and softer in the way that I talk to them and my speech, even in you know my body language, the way I sit. I would do a lot of things like that to help them feel comfortable. Now, some of my patients want me to tell them to stop. Like they need more tough love, which I'm that patient also. I need my therapist to call me out on my shit because otherwise I'll just get away with it. And nope, it's not going to make me any better, right? So some of my patients can handle that, especially, I'll be honest, a lot of my eating disorder patients are going to get called out for their eating disorder behavior. I'll be like, stop moving in your chair. You're doing that thing. I know your eating disorder is telling you to do it. I'm going to call you out and I'm going to be a little bit more abrasive there. But again, not every patient can handle that, you know, harsh, and not even harsh, because it isn't harsh. It's more like a tough love, like, hey, you're coming to me to get help, and I'm going to tell you what I'm noticing so that we can work together to stop it, right? So each person is going to be a little bit different. And I've had some patients who want to be called out on their shit in session or want me to be more, you know, just just tougher on them and others need it softer. And so I will shift how I am in order to accommodate that. Because again, therapy is more about you and not at all about me as a therapist. And I'm here to help you as much as I can. And so that's really what your therapist is doing. It's not faking themselves. It's more about knowing how best to guide the session. And you're going to be different than other people. And so they're what she's saying. So to make sense of what she said, because she told you she adapts to each client and is more mindful of how she is with you and is more conscious of being more predictable. So predictable, being predictable for those of us who have had a very tough upbringing, let's say a parent was a drug addict or an alcoholic, or we just had a parent who was never really around, right? We couldn't predict, or if we had a a parent who was a narcissist or had borderline personality disorder that wasn't working to get better, they can be really difficult to predict. You don't know which one you're going to get, right? You can come home and they can be really angry and lash out and be super impulsive, or they can be super sweet and you really just don't know. You can feel like you're walking on eggshells all the time. And if we've had that kind of upbringing where we're constantly walking on eggshells, kind of waiting for some other shit to happen or somebody to hurt us, then having a therapist that's predictable and calm is going to be really healing because you've never had that before. However, then another patient, going back to another option, right, or another type of therapy, if a patient's always had a predictable family and they they just find that they're 
you know, struggling with fear of failure and anxiety and it's impairing their ability to do their work and move up and whatever they're trying to do, I'm going to be a little bit more pushy, right? Because the it's not so important that I'm predictable and soft. It's more important that they recognize all the behaviors that they're doing that aren't helping them so that we can work on them. And so I'm going to call them out a little bit more. And so that's really what your therapist is saying is that for you, it's really important that she's predictable and probably a little bit more soft and warm, but other clients is different. And so, yeah, being energetic, like I wouldn't be super energetic or animated with my anxious patients because it's just going to build that in the room. Instead, I'd be very soothing and calm and keep my cool, not too fidgety, not don't talk too fast. I'll even slow down and kind of take some breaths while I talk to them. There's things that we can do to kind of help you soothe your system, right? We're sharing an environment together and an energy. And so we'll try to keep that energy at the most therapeutic level possible. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I hope it does. She's not faking. She's just trying to create the environment that's the most healing and supportive for you. Now, there was a comment on this that said, hi, Katie, can you please also cover whether therapists ever fake specific emotions that they want to model to their clients? My therapist will will say things like, I felt a wave of compassion for you when you talked about your experience as a child. I find it hard to believe that she genuinely feels that way. Why is it hard to believe? I don't, I think there's something in that, but let's dig into that in a second. So she's been doing this for a while, so I'm sure she's heard it all. I'm just oh, I'm just one of her 30 or so clients, so I don't see why she would feel anything at all. She's been trying to help me be less self-loathing and more self-compassionate, so I think it's just one of her techniques. Okay, when you said that um, you'd find it hard to believe that she feels compassion for you, that is honestly just transference. So what you're doing is you're transferring your own relationship with yourself onto your therapist. And you're like, I don't have any compassion for me. So I don't understand how the fuck you do. That's what you're, that's what I hear in that. When a therapist, I don't believe I've, I mean, I've never known, maybe some people do, but I've never known any of my colleagues to fake emotions with our patients. It's more, we would express what we're feeling to hopefully help you get a better handle on yours and be able to identify you know, what you're feeling, or maybe she's probably, like you said, she's trying to get you to feel more compassionate for yourself. And so she's expressing to you that, Hey, when you told me that saying that you feel compassion for someone is really like, I feel sad for the fact that you had to go through that, but people don't respond so well to, I feel sad for you. People like, I don't want your pity. Ah, People get so defensive, but that really just means I feel compassion, like that fucking sucked and I'm sorry. And I hate that, I hate you had to go through that, right? It's part of that like loving, compassion, support and just wanting things to get better. And so she's trying to show you that, yes, this can elicit that response. And in a way it's giving you permission to offer that to yourself. Now it's gonna take some time. And it sounds like right now your defenses are still up. So you're like, yeah, you can't feel that way. Ha, she must be faking it. This can't be real. Nobody feels compassion for me. I'm not worthy of it. And she's trying to, through her therapeutic techniques and tools, trying to challenge those beliefs about yourself and those beliefs about you not being worthy of it. And so I do not believe that she is faking. I believe she's just trying to like uh, show you the behavior she's wanting to give to yourself. Does that make sense? It's like trying to allow you to see another way of talking to yourself and another way of interacting. And I think it's really great. And it hopefully will help you change from self-loathing to a little bit more self-compassion. And maybe we need to bridge statement it. Maybe it's like, 
I am open to considering that maybe my therapist isn't faking it. And maybe when I tell her about those things that happened to me as a child, maybe she feels a little compassion. Maybe. I don't know for sure, but uh, maybe. You know, maybe that's how, how we talk about it. Okay. Another comment on this said, as a side note, how do you come to terms with finding out that your therapist lied to you about something pretty important? My previous therapist spoke about being married for over 40 years and about how her spouse and my spouse had the same kind of career. So she understood what I was experiencing. Okay. So she was revealing some things about herself as a way to empathize and help you know that she got it a little bit. She spoke as if it were present tense on quite a few occasions. My husband and I started doing couples therapy with her before we added individual therapy. And then a couple months before she passed, she disclosed to me that uh, me and my husband, that she had gotten a divorce during the time frame that she was counseling us. She, I, and I still struggle with that confession. I believe it has led me to not fully trust in my new therapist. And I find myself thinking twice about what she says and not wanting to hear anything about her personal life. That's fine. They shouldn't share much anyway. I find it difficult to trust any of my feelings or even talk about my marriage with her in therapy. How do I get help? How, what can I do to help get over these feelings of betrayal so I can move forward in therapy? Well, okay. Here's it. I'm just going to challenge you a little bit because her not telling you about her divorce, I, I would want you to rethink whether that's actually betrayal or let's reframe this because I would argue that she shared about her personal life a little bit to help you knew to help you know that she like quote unquote gets it right because feeling like a therapist actually knows where we're coming from like I can't tell you how many times off parents ask like do you have kids and upon hearing that I don't they're not as open to talking about things or they will feel like I just don't get it because I can't, right? I haven't, I don't have children. I don't have any plans of having children. And so I don't understand their experience fully and that can bother people. Now, you knowing that she, you know, had been married for a long time and her, her husband had a similar job as your husband helped you feel heard and understood. Now, did the divorce mean that she didn't understand? Probably not. And she probably didn't tell you that because A, it's none of your business and B, it doesn't actually have any bearing on the work you're doing in therapy because it's actually about you and not about her. Now, if she was disclosing like a shitload of information about her personal life, I would argue that therapist isn't doing a very good job and they should keep their own shit to themselves and talk about it in their own therapy and leave your sessions for you. But it sounds like it was a small disclosure and she would add in little bits about it to help you know that she gets it. And her telling you about her divorce would be her disclosing personal information as if it was her own therapy session when it's not. Because it, I think of it this way, if you were in her shoes and your marriage was dissolving and you were getting divorced and you're working with another couple who you'd already like told them you were married and you know, blah, blah that could make them feel like it's not going to get better <laughs> and that they're going to get divorced, right? That's not very helpful. And that's kind of like a negative thing to bring into a therapy session. And so I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have said it either. So let, anyways, I just want you to kind of consider it from another perspective because I don't so much agree with you that it's like a therapeutic betrayal. I think maybe she shared too much about herself possibly or you put a lot of emphasis on the fact that there's, I don't know why it would matter if they got to, I guess that's my question to you is like, what about her getting divorced means that it, her, what she offered wasn't helpful. Cause like consider was the advice she gave in your counseling sessions with your husband helpful? Has it like 
helped your relationship grow? Have you healed from maybe past pains or infidelities or whatever you're working on? Was it beneficial? If the answer is yes, then it really doesn't matter what was going on in her life. Because again, it's not her therapy session, it's yours. And she didn't disclose it because it's not really pertinent. Do you know what I mean? And I don't, I'm not saying this to like invalidate you in any way. I'm just saying sometimes I think we, we believe that therapists are like not real humans and like we don't have problems too and we don't divorce or break up or fight with people or do things that aren't correct or, you know, I don't know, lash out at someone because we're really tired. We're people too. We make all sorts of mistakes. And her sharing that with you a little bit, I think was, is fine, but her life, that's kind of where it ends. Now it's your therapy and it's not really about her. Does that, I hope that that makes sense. And I hope you don't feel like I'm, I'm not trying to invalidate or minimize what happened. I'm just telling you that I, I really think that she did, didn't share out of therapeutic benefit to you and your husband. That would be my thought about it. Um, yeah. And if, if you're still really struggling, so the last little part of her question, so how can I move forward in therapy? You can talk about that betrayal in your new therapy. Sometimes we just need to be able to process what we went through in our past or, you know, our previous therapist's experience in the current therapy setting so that we can let them know of certain triggers or things we don't like. And it can also help ensure that they don't do certain things. Like maybe you don't want your current therapist to share anything about themselves. You can say that. That's fair. I don't share much about myself at all in session because it's not helpful for my patients. (sighs) The only thing I might share, I've told you guys this, is like if I've, like I had a patient, this is years ago, going through like a friend breakup and I was like, oh, I've had some of those and you know, here's what I kind of learned. And so I, I won't really share much, but I'll share that like, oh, that's, I've been through it too. Or like someone's losing a parent. I'm like, oh yeah, my, my dad died when I was 24. I'll tell people a little bit about that, but I don't share much. It's only done as a way for them to, to know that I, I at least get it. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I hope that that helps. Let's move on to question number three. This question reads, hi, Katie, can you please talk about why it's physically so hard to talk about trauma? I want to try to talk through things in therapy, but I find it's physically hard to get the words out. And even when I'm trying really hard, I struggle to get every word out and it feels like I lose the ability to talk. I find this especially confusing because I'm otherwise able to open up in therapy and don't physically struggle to talk about anything else. Thank you for all you do. I look forward to reading your new book this fall. Yay. I cannot wait to see it out in the world. Please tag me, you guys, when these start arriving in September. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Okay. Physically, trauma is an interesting thing. So because trauma technically can it can fully affect our nervous system. I don't want to get too much in the nerdy weeds of it, but it can disrupt our nervous system in many ways, which leads to a lot of the symptoms of PTSD. Therefore, even the, the mere thought of addressing it or talking about it or opening up about it with someone can like shut us down because our nervous system is already like maxed. And so trauma can feel very overwhelming. That's number one. Secondly, trauma memories can be very confusing because A, we cannot have them, meaning we were dissociated when this thing happened, so we don't have any memory of it. Maybe we only remember the very beginning and the very end of this situation or this time frame in our life. So we might not even have those memories, so it can be really hard for us to recall and talk about things, and even the thought of trying to do it can just shut us down. Then the second is that the memories can also be like spotty and like not really make any sense. So it can be hard for us to talk through. And three, we probably have never in our life 
mention this situation or situations out loud. And saying those words can feel so emotionally charged, meaning it just brings up so much for us that again, we shut down. Hence why it's so physically difficult for you to talk about your trauma. Now, my encouragement would really be for you to start doing other ways to communicate because there's more ways to communicate about something that's not just using words, talking out loud in session. And those are things like journaling, starting to write a little bit about it. You don't have to write it in a story form. You can, you could start out, Maybe it's easier to in therapy to start doing a trauma timeline. I talk about this in my book um, that's coming out in September, but it's essentially putting together, like putting your traumas on a timeline of years or months or days or whatever, you know, depending on your situation and piecing it together with other big events in your life. You know, let's say like starting school in kindergarten, if you remember, or like middle school, high school, getting my license, you know, getting married, graduate, whatever, whatever things, moving out. Um, and putting those traumas into the timeline around other big life events. You can try that um, as well as the journaling, like I said. And then we can also maybe try different types of, of therapy treatment, like letting your therapist know, hey, could we do you do offer things like EMDR, which is if you don't know, it's an eye movement re, um, desensitization and reprocessing, where we essentially use eye movement from left to right, boop, 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 boop. They call it bilateral stimulation. And we use that to allow our brain to have another opportunity to process something. So maybe that's something we look into, or possibly we look into somatic experiencing where you use body movements to get that stuff out of our system, which can bring down again, that emotional charge so that then we're able to talk about it. So there are a lot of different things that we can do to try to calm our system so that we can talk about it. Don't think anything's wrong with you because it's difficult. It's difficult for a lot of people. It's completely normal, but we just have to find ways to calm our system down so that we can push through it. And I would let your therapist know that you struggle with this. They probably already do, but just letting them know that this is happening. And then maybe even just tell them, hey, I need more resources and ways to calm my system down. You can say that and your therapist will know what that means. And then you can try some things out. I also have a whole video. If you just get on YouTube and put in Katie Morton coping skills or Katie Morton 25 coping skills, I have a video offering 25 different ways to help us process and calm and distract. So it's just ways to soothe our system so that we maybe don't feel so overwhelmed that we shut down and can't put words to things or can't even talk at all. You know, it, they're just, you have to figure out what works best for you. And that gives you a lot of potential tools. And also the comments are filled with more coping skills from all of the wonderful people in our community. So maybe give that a try because I think that that's what's holding you back is that feeling of overwhelm. And it's very normal, especially when it comes to trauma. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And this question reads, hi, Katie, can you talk about chronic loneliness and what it is? I thought I had social anxiety and maybe I do, but it's this feeling of being unconnected that has me feeling hollow. I think this is really common, but I don't have the language or knowledge to describe how I'm feeling. What baby steps can I take toward making progress towards connection? Now there's a question, there was a comment below this, but let's just dig into this one first. So the thing that's interesting about loneliness and I think the problem, the reason so many people have this problem is because having friends or being in social situations doesn't mean we don't feel lonely. Connection, we find, okay, so if you guys don't remember, I had a video that came out at like the very beginning of COVID 
talking about how the polyvagal theory, if you want to really get nerdy, you can dig into polyvagal theory. And I think it's Dr. Stephen Porges is the one who did most of the research in that area. But by my brain, I think that's correct. Anyway, what we learn is that our system can be both soothed and also ignited, meaning we can be energized through social connection. However, we also know that it's not uh, some stupid conversation that we have about the weather with somebody at a cocktail party and we don't even really know them. Any of those like kind of, you know, lighthearted conversations we have just like basic kind of chit chat that nobody really likes, right? Nobody really enjoys that kind of stuff, but that doesn't help us feel connected. So just being around people and being at parties or events is not going to help us feel connected and less lonely. What we find is that eye contact in person with someone who actually understands us is what helps us feel connected and soothes our nervous system while also helping us feel excited and ignited and energized. Okay. And so this chronic loneliness may be, and I have a couple suspicions, but it may just be because we don't we don't spend time with anyone who actually understands us or knows us. And therapy is a great way to get some of that connection. And I would encourage you to seek that out and look into it. So there's that component. But also we may, um, and this is one of my suspicions, those of us with borderline personality disorder can really struggle with our sense of self, like who we are and feeling like we know who we are, or we even, it, we can struggle so much with our own identity that it makes it feel impossible for us to connect with someone else in a real way. Does that make sense? Because like, we don't know who we are. So how are we supposed to tell somebody else who we are so that they can get to know us? Feels impossible. Also, we struggle with fear of abandonment. So we can get into a relationship and then worry that now they know us and we really care about them and we could get hurt. I better run away. And so we can go and, you know, have this like cycles of perpetually, perpetually leaving relationships uh, preemptively so that we don't get hurt and then we feel lonely again. And so I'd be very curious about that as well. And social anxiety, I guess the way to tease it out, whether it's chronic loneliness or social anxiety is what's your level of worry about social events is the buildup of going to a social event just like I don't want to go I don't want to go I don't go this is gonna be terrible it's gonna be terrible and all these swirling thoughts of worries what if uh nobody likes me what if I don't know anybody what if if we have this constant worry that we can't control that's anxiety chronic loneliness is like just not feeling connected feeling like no one really knows us and I don't have anybody that I really that cares about me you know, it can be more of that vein. So if we have a lot of overwhelming worry that we can't control, then it's anxiety. And seeing a therapist and changing the way that we talk to ourselves about our anxiety, that will all be incredibly healing. Yeah, so I know that's a lot, but the best way, baby steps toward making progress and connection is, I have this video and I want you to watch it and it's about building self-confidence. I think it's like five ways to build self-confidence. It was, it came out like, I don't know, last December or something. You can probably find it on my channel. Just search it. But some things we can do, and this is going to sound silly, 
But one thing that I want you to do is I want you to do what's called building mastery. Now, building mastery is when we take something that we we like maybe enjoy doing or something that we're kind of good at, but not like really good. And I want you to get better at it. And I want you to practice it. Could be your favorite mac and cheese recipe. Let's like get that shit together. Let's make it delicious. Let's, let's like take it to the next level. Let's build that mastery. Or maybe it's like I want to learn how to play guitar or I'm learning a new language or I'd really like to be able to do yoga. So I'm going to like start doing some yoga online. Anything anything could be that you're really good at organizing or good at plan you know planning and i don't even care no judgments maybe you want to learn how to fold things like marie kondo you do you whatever feels good and do it until you feel really good at it because building that confidence in yourself will help us not only in our self-talk which is really where this all comes from but also in our ability to connect with other people and talk about things that we enjoy so do that that's my first step for you and then the second if you if you're like well, I already am doing that. Okay. Kudos to you. Second step is start paying attention to how you talk to yourself about socializing and relationships. If if I told you right now, hey, we're going to go out with a couple, you know, it's going to be a couple friends we're going to meet up with. They'll probably be like five or so. And we're going to grab some food. Come, come on, let's go. What would you say to yourself about that? I want to know what that conversation's like. Are you like, holy shit, this is terrible. What am I going to wear? People are going to think I'm stupid. Are we just spiraling into a pit of despair? Pay attention. Write those thoughts down. And then let's use some little bridge statements. Let's not let those thoughts live rent-free in our brain. Let's challenge them with a little bit more positivity. Like, mm, maybe, maybe, maybe Katie's right. And it's possible that, that people could like me. I might not be as bad as I think I am. Maybe. Can we do that? So that's the second step. But those are just some of the tips and I have videos about that too. So if you want to dig in more, you can. Now a comment on this says, I can also relate to this. I deal with social anxiety too. It has become very apparent that I have a super hard time socializing even within my family. I'd rather just be by myself. My anxiety is through the roof. Social anxiety bothers me more because I do like people. I'm on anxiety meds and I take them three times a day and it's at a pretty high dose. I have no idea what to do. Do you have any tips? Thank you so much. Now, I'm not a doctor, but if you're taking a pretty high dose of an anxiety med and you still can't even socialize with people, it's not doing its job. So I would encourage you to either A, call your psychiatrist, which I hope is who you're seeing, and tell them this, like, hey, it's not making me feel any better and I still can't even hang out with my family. It's like overwhelming to my system and see, have them switch you to something else. Or if you're seeing like your regular doctor, I encourage you to please, please, please see a psychiatrist. Trust me, they specialize in psychotropic medication, which is the medication we take for mental illnesses and they know it best. They went to school for it. That's the reason that, you know, we pay them such big buckos is because they went to all that school and they can help us. And so making, then they'll also potentially run some assessments. And I mean, most of the psychiatrists that I've worked with in the past do assessments before we start a medication then they'll do them after just to make sure that there's actually marked improvement like you are feeling better um your therapist can do that for you as well if you want to be able to track it and the psychiatrist doesn't i think that's really great because then we can see the improvement that's honestly my first tip because if i give you therapeutic tools and techniques your anxiety is too overwhelming you're like drowning in the symptoms so i actually can't help you until we get those symptoms kind of under control. Now, I will give you one thing that I want you to do each and every day in the morning and at night. It takes less than 30 seconds. Do a full body shake. So when you wake up, I'm, I'm sure if your anxiety is through the roof, you wake up and your worry thoughts are already just there waiting for you, like swirling. What if this is gonna be terrible? Oh my God, this person, 
I'm lazy. This is stupid. All the worry, all the shit talking, all the nasty stuff starts going right away. I want you to get up and I want you to shake out like you like you don't have a towel and you're a dog and you just got to shake all that water off. I want you to shake from your head to your feet until you're out of breath. Like 20 seconds, honestly, will do the trick. And then I want you to do it before you go to bed. And I want you to notice what comes up for you. For most of us, it does get some of that anxious like energy in our body, you know, where your heart feels like it's racing or maybe your stomach starts to kind of cramp, your hands are sweaty or your muscle, you just feel like you want to tear your skin off. It can get that energy out. And before bed, it can kind of slow those worry thoughts so that we can rest more quickly and fall asleep more quickly and hopefully stay asleep longer. Um, but do that. See your doctor. The, those meds aren't working three times a day. It's just not working. It's just not a good fit. Um, and we'll get that on board and that should that should help you out. Okay. Now let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hey, Katie, all exclamation points. Very excited. I'm excited too. It says, I was wondering what inspired you to become a therapist? Specifically, what made you want to focus on eating disorders and most recently trauma? I love listening to your podcast and look forward to it each week. Thank you for all you do for our community and bringing mental health awareness to so many. Of course, of course. Um, truly, I've always enjoyed being a secret keeper. Who doesn't love gossip, right? As a kid, I loved to know what was going on and I took great pride in not telling anybody else. So I was never a gossiper, but I like to be gossiped too. I like to know all the secrets, I guess. I'm a secret keeper and I've always loved doing that. And so at a very young age, I was always, I always loved to have my friends like confide in me and, you know, I was a vault. I wouldn't get out. I felt so, so much pride in that. And so when I, I want to say it was like my junior or senior year of high school, they, I think it was only available to seniors now that I even say that out loud, but they offered a psychology 101 course. And I was like, hmm, I'm going to take that. And I took it and I found it fascinating and so interesting. Not to mention I started my own therapy around the age of 15. And I just thought it was such a cool thing. I really loved it. And I all then, so, okay, so flash forward, then I went to Pepperdine uh, undergrad, uh, majored in psychology and music for a hot minute before I realized I couldn't do both and graduate in four. So dropped the music minor, majored in psychology. And, um, loved the courses, loved the information. But at that point, I wasn't sure if it was worth, because I paid for all my own schooling and school's fucking expensive. I couldn't decide if it was worth the money for me to go into a graduate program for it. I wanted to try out a job in the field and see if I really liked it. So I worked at this foster home um, for parenting or pregnant teen girls. And holy shit, that job was hard, but I loved it. And I love talking to people. I love listening to people. I loved working with people to get, to help them feel better. I felt like it was such a privilege to be part of that. I don't know, part of their journey. And I also have had a ton of jobs. As you guys know, I was a sales rep for a long time. I was a waitress. I was a barista. I worked at Jamba Juice for a minute. Um, I've had a ton of jobs. I don't even know. That's probably not even an exhaustive list. I was a nanny, babysitter, all that, obviously. But I get super bored. And every job just seemed to be like, I don't know, just started to feel very tedious. I never liked it. And after like, even the sales rep, which you think like, oh, you're seeing all these different people and it's kind of interesting, that became super boring pretty quickly. And I want to say it was like three years in, I was like, I got to get out of this. And so, but it helped me pay down my student loans, hey, and pay for my wedding. So I stuck with it for a little bit longer, but I 
quit those jobs because I was just, they're not interesting. And, and I don't, you know, after it reminds me of like, if anybody's seen the movie Office Space, where he's like those TPS reports and like the paperwork. I worked, worked at an EAP program for a couple of years. That's how I met my girlfriend, Rocio. But anyways, long story short, those all get boring. And you know what doesn't get boring? People. People are interesting. And being able to talk with people, I find just super fulfilling. And, um, and also, yeah, I guess it's part, sorry, I'm rambling, but I think it's not only that other jobs are boring, but I think being a therapist is just, it's, it's super fulfilling work because you get to see people grow and change where, you know, filling out a certain number of forms and getting all my reports done for the EAP program or selling a certain amount of things just never did it for me and always just felt like a soulless job. Like, what am I wasting my life doing? You know, it just didn't feel good to me. And I know not everyone has to have that fulfillment. And I sometimes wish I didn't either because it's like, sometimes it's hard to find a thing that's fulfilling. But thank God being a therapist is fulfilling, being online, getting to hang out with you guys, doing live streams, all of that like fills me up. It's super rewarding. And yeah, so that's what kind of kept me going. And what made me focus on eating disorders and most recently trauma. So eating disorders, actually the funny enough, when I had a couple of good friends in high school who struggled with eating disorder behavior and I from the get in therapy, they always tell you like, oh, if you've experienced something personally or someone close to you, you know, you might want to stay away from that a little bit until you get your own handle on it, right? Like meaning work on your own shit in therapy before you try to do it as a therapist, which is great advice. And so because I had a really close friend of mine who'd struggled and still to this day has a tough time, I immediately was like, oh, I can't work in that field. Like that's too close to home. I don't really get it. I was never able to help her. Ugh. And then uh, went to school and was trying to get a job as an intern. When you're in graduate school, you have to, you know, get a job to earn your hours towards your licensure. And really struggled. Like everybody's applying, and it's it's competitive because everybody from the schools is they're all applying for these internships. And I got one offer that didn't pay at all, and I got another offer that paid. And the one that paid was at an eating disorder treatment center. And I was like, you know a lady's got to eat. I got to pay my bills. I need to have this one that pays. I can't go, I can't work for free. And I was being, I was a waitress at the same time and doing all this stuff. It was just overwhelming. And so I thought about it. I was like, I'll give it a try. If it doesn't work, you know, I can always try to find something else. And so I began working at this eating disorder treatment center and it was the most fulfilling job. I, I just fell in love with the girls. I fell in love with the process. It was so educational for me to learn about it. I, I think it makes me a better friend to my my friend um, from high school. And yeah, I just, I don't know. It it was just some of the most fulfilling therapeutic work I've ever done. And so it just has started from there and it's grown ever since. And trauma, the reason I've most recently become so interested in trauma is because I believe that 100%, if not like at least 98% of us have been traumatized and just don't know it. And I think we've defined trauma, unfortunately, in society as like a veteran returning from war or someone who'd been in a horrific accident or was like horribly physically abused throughout their whole life. We think of these big things. And the more I learn and the more I hear from each and every one of you, the more I realize that trauma is everywhere. We have all been traumatized. Um, in many, many different ways. Even when I was writing the book, I was coming, doing my own, you know, kind of like digging into my own life and my own experience and looking for traumas. And if you've ever heard of the ACEs study, I, I include those in the book as well. But it's like questions when you really just have to dig into your past and be honest about it. And 
you'll be shocked at what you find. And I was shocked at what I found. And so I really believe that we need to talk about trauma more where there needs to be more awareness. I think a lot of us are acting out of past traumas and not even recognizing that that's what we're doing and getting in relationships that are repeats of past ones because we don't know what else to do. And anyway, long story short, all of you have inspired me and all of my patients have inspired me to dig into this more. And yeah, I just because I think it's so, so very common, but we're just don't, we don't think of it that way. And so I want to change the way we talk about it and think about it. Okay, cool. Let's move on to question number six. It says, hi, Katie. I'm always so distracted by what my therapist is typing or writing when I'm speaking. I honestly hate when therapists do this. I don't do this, but we'll get into it. It says, I know she's doing her job and whatever notes she's taking are probably pretty clinical and straightforward, but my curiosity never seems to go away. What do therapist notes usually look like? I actually have a video about this. Do therapists ever inject their own opinions into them? And why do I wonder so badly what her notes say? The curiosity is even more conflicted by wanting to give her the space to have her own private, quote unquote, rough notes about our sessions out of respect. Am I ever allowed to ask to see them? And if so, should I? Now I have a video. I think you can probably just look up Katie Morton therapist notes and it should come up. But I personally don't write or type much. I don't type at all. I actually think computers and typing, having them on my lap or next to me on the desk in my office, it was just too much for, I don't like the way that looks. It feels very disconnected. And I personally, as someone who's been in therapy, wouldn't like that. So I've never done it. I used to keep a a little notepad on a clipboard on my lap and I would jot things down. And I would always tell my patients, you can always ask to see what it is, but it's usually notes about names and ages and symptoms that I'm noticing. That's pretty much what it is. Um, and I do most of my note taking after the session. So in the 10 minutes between your session and the next person, I'm taking some notes about the things that I noticed, homework that I gave you and things that I want to check up on. So that's really it. Um, those are the things that I usually write down because I don't want to forget that, oh, you have a younger sister because she's coming in town next week from school or something and her name is, I don't know, Lucy. I want to remember that Lucy's her name and that she's 24. So I'll write that stuff down. I'll say going to school and I don't know, let's say she's in Boston and in school. So I'll write that stuff down so I don't forget. Or, you know, parents divorced, mom remarried this other guy. We don't like him. So I'll put like a little notation like you know, client thinks a jerk is a jerk. Um, and just things like that so that I keep track of your family tree and people in your life that are important. And then homework that I've given you and symptoms that we're tracking. So I'll be like, didn't sleep well, you know, I'll write all that stuff down. So that's usually what they look like. And I don't do it as much in session as I do right after your session, just because I think it is distracting. So, oh, and do we ever inject our own opinions into that? Yes, we do. Um, because it's our like clinical assessment. So I might write in a patient's note, uh, you know, not sleeping well, seems a little hyperactive, curious if bipolar might be a possible diagnosis or uh, talked about past relationship with girlfriend, wonder if abuse was there. I might write things or alcoholism question mark, you know, I'll write things that I'm wondering about things I still need to assess. So that I'm not forgetting anything or missing any of the red flags or signs or symptoms and things like that. Now that's really it. And then wondering what so badly what her notes say, I think it's very common. A lot of people want to know, and I've actually never had a patient ask to see mine, but I think it's because I'm so candid about it. Like I'll tell them on their, on our first session, almost always, maybe if there was too much to talk about in the first session, I might say it in the second, but I'll just tell them what I write and why I'm writing. If you see me jotting something down, you can always ask. But again, no one has ever asked, but they are 
your it, it it's your file and they're notes about your session therefore if you don't know the rules in therapy you hold the confidence meaning that confidentiality is yours so i like let's say a good example of this would be like if i'm out in public and i'm your therapist and i see you out there I'm not going to come up to you and say hi. I won't even wave. I won't even acknowledge that I know you. And that's not because I'm being rude. That's because if I say hi to you and I don't realize you're with somebody else and somebody walks up and like, who's that? How do you know them? I've just put you in a pretty shitty situation where then you have to decide, do I need to tell this person that I work with that that's my therapist? Do I want them to know I'm in therapy? Like that's pretty messed up, right? But you can always walk up to me because it's your confidentiality. And if you want to break that confidence to say hi, you can, but I won't do it. Does that make sense? So that's kind of how this works. And it works the same way in the notes. Those notes are yours to have if you want, but you know, you'd have to ask me for them. Now, a therapist might say that they don't think it's clinically helpful or therapeutically beneficial for you to see the notes. And I've told patients that before in the past. Um, not that they asked to see them, but I've said, I've told them because one of my patients was getting all of her stuff transferred over to me. She was switching therapists and she was like, I kind of want to read all that that therapist wrote about me because they didn't have a very good relationship. And I was like, I don't know if that's really helpful. I can read through them if you want and let you know. And she ended up never actually reading them, but you can, and it's your right to, but a therapist might give you a little pushback if they don't think it's going to be helpful. And um, so, yes, you can see them if you want. And I would just, I also, the last thing I want to say about this is please tell your therapist you find this distracting. They can do their notes another time. I know. Or you, she can just not type and only jot down specific things and just tell you what she's jotting down. That might help too. Because the thing about it I don't like is that it's distracting you in session and pulling you out of what you should be focusing on, which is your therapy work. Now, there was a comment on this and it says, also, do all therapists take notes? Mine doesn't during sessions, but I can't help but wonder if she does it after or something. She probably does. I would say, yes, all therapists take notes because we're trained to. It's the best way to prevent you from uh, losing your license. If someone was ever to say that you did something, your notes are kind of proof that it didn't happen or proof that of what you were working on or any of those things. And also for insurance, they require certain notations and paperwork and stuff. And so it's just part of how we're trained and what we should be doing, like treatment planning and all of that goes in the notes. And it's it's really important. So most therapists do them between session, like I said, I do. And a lot of therapists now do everything electronically because it's like time stamped and, you know, it's there's all sorts of like protections within that. Um, this person says, I find it hard to believe she remembers so much of what I say without making some sort of notes because she probably take no takes notes. I want to ask her, but at the same time, I don't want to assume or make uh, accusations. So you could to completely ask, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with with that. Um, it's fine. You can always ask. We're, we're Therapists aren't keeping any big secrets. We just have our own process and that it just is what it is. Um, now, there was a comment on this as well that said, I started to obsess over what he was writing in his notes. And one day my friend gave me the idea to ask for my medical records to read what he says. Since then has become a constant combination of curiosity and obsession to know exactly what was written in his notes. Sometimes I feel invalidated and deeply misunderstood when I read that, quote unquote, I am testing boundaries or I'm being provocative with my answers and behaviors. Therefore, I feel I can't open up, which is already so hard for me to trust him. I have issues with trust and opening up to others. 
I feel now as well that whatever I tell him will permanently be in my medical record and that will look bad on me. And yet I can't stop to and wonder, or I can't stop wondering what he says in there. Why all of this is so conflicting and why I care so much about how bad I'm going to look on paper. It's obvious that it affects the way I feel in my therapy sessions. Still, I can't stop to read my medical records to find, oh, I can't stop reading my medical records to find out what he says about me. Does all this even make any sense? It totally makes sense. And in a way, you're kind of like sabotaging your own therapy. I would encourage you to talk to your therapist about this and the fact that you feel the need to read them and then you're hurt by them because it's almost like we're purposefully wounding ourselves. I'd even be surprised if, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you struggle with maybe borderline personality disorder or some kind of self-injurious behavior because it feels very self-injurious. And that's why a lot of times, you know, reading your notes isn't a helpful thing. I've never read my notes from my therapist and I have no intention of ever getting those. So I don't want to know that, you know, I'm a people pleaser and can be, you know, I don't know, cries a lot and I don't even know what they would say, struggles with boundaries. You know, I don't need to read all that shit. That's not going to make me feel any better, right? And so I would tell your therapist that you struggle with this and talk about it. And I would be very curious about this defense mechanism or or how often this comes up in your life. Are there other ways that you that you purposely harm yourself, even knowing that it's going to hurt you? Have you done things like this before? I'd be curious about that. And then second, I would also be curious about, you know, secret keeping and what role that plays in your life. If you've ever felt like, uh, some, you know, like for instance, I, I would suspect that someone who struggles with this could also have had, you know, a tough time maybe with, uh, friends always thinking that people are talking about them behind their backs and always looking at other people. If someone laughs in a restaurant, you're like, oh my God, they're laughing at me. I would be curious if you have those kinds of situations and obsessions as well. Um, but yeah, just being curious, you know, not judgmental, just learning about it. I think, uh, I think could be, could tell you more. And that could also explain, you know, why you care so much if you're going to look bad on paper, like, where's that coming from? Who do you think is reading this? And who do you think cares about that enough to, you know what I mean? Uh, Let's dig into that. That will tell you more. You'll, you know, you have all the answers. You just have to be a little bit curious about it and talk with your therapist about it because it is, impeding your growth and your work in therapy and it's really important that they they know that that's happening okay let's move on to question number seven it says hi katie do you have any tips on how to force yourself to do the work for example lately i've been wanting to try journaling emotion charts and reading more self-help books but i'm having trouble getting myself to do it mostly because i hardly have time it just feels like an extra task and when i do have time i'd rather do something like relax and watch tv or take a bath i started an antidepressant a few months ago and it is really helping but i want to take it a step further and do some other things to help myself so that i don't have to rely on medication forever i love that I don't think the reason I don't do it is because I'm too depressed. I think it's just because I hardly have time. And when I do, it's the last thing I want to do. Do you have any tips on how to make time for self-care and healing and how to make yourself want to do it? Thank you. Now, the wanting might come later. I'm just going to throw that out there. Sometimes we have to do it even though we don't want to do it. It's That's life. Is that, I think that's adulthood, doing shit you don't want to do because you know you got to do it. I feel like that's what adulthood is and no one tells you don't grow up. It's a trick. Anyway, I really think when it comes to this, considering self-care and healing as a thing that can be added on easily in less than 10 minutes. So the problem I feel like with society and like social media in particular these days is it makes self-care into this big fucking thing where it's like, I need to have hours of my day 
so that I can read you know, tons of chapters of this book and journal for 20 and I'm supposed to write these things down. I'm all supposed to do this like, you know, bullet journal and then I'm supposed to go get a massage and then like paint my toenail. Like there's so much stuff that we can feel like we have to do. When in reality, I would encourage you for just a week, for three days a week, either when you wake up or when you go to bed, depending on how you are. Some people get up early and have time. Others like myself are like, if you have to leave the house, you're like racing around like a maniac. I don't have time in the morning, but I do have time at night is to get yourself into bed. And five minutes before that, maybe it's like, maybe right before you go brush your teeth, or maybe it's when you're like laying in bed, I want you to journal out two things you're grateful for, two things you're working on, and two things you're looking forward to. And I want you to do this three times. That means maybe I do it on a Monday, then my week gets crazy. Then I do it on a Thursday, and I do it on a Saturday. You're all good. Let's try that. If that feels like too much, let's just try once a week. But I really would like there to be a little bit more consistency throughout your week, maybe twice at the very least. But let's give that a go and see how that works. Because what I feel like is happening here is you're wanting to do all these things. And I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if you don't struggle with like black and white, all or nothing thinking. Like I have to either be completely on board doing this perfectly or fuck it, I'm out. And I want you to find a space where you're like, you know, I'm just going to try to incorporate a little bit each day or three times a week, or at least once a week, I'd like to do something. And I don't want it to take you more than five to 10 minutes. If you're really struggling, just move on to the next thing. I only have one thing I'm grateful for. Wonderful. Move on. Next thing. I want you to get through this so that you can not only tell your yourself and your brain really that self-care doesn't have to be overwhelming and doesn't have to take up all your time. And then I also just want to get into this pattern or this habit of even thinking like that. Because for some of my patients, I'll be honest, they've been doing like these gratitude lists for a long time, so much so that before they go to bed without even thinking, they're like, today I'm grateful for, and they'll like do their thing in their head. So you can get to that point where it takes you just a couple minutes and you can just go to bed. And yeah, that's really my tip because so often we feel like it has to be this big thing and take forever. And I'm here to tell you it doesn't. And it's actually easier for us to continue doing that self-care behavior when it doesn't take very much time. These should be small things, you know, like even if it's, I'm wanting to, I hear from people a lot of time, like I want to, you know, get back into exercise. It feels good. And it's a good self-care for me. And I haven't done it forever, but you know, I just can't get myself together to do those hour and a half classes or these 45 minute classes. I'm like, dude, start five, 10 minutes. Why don't you walk around the block? go get your mail, you know, do some stretches when you get back inside, call it a day. That's a great place to start. We have to start somewhere. We can't start running marathons. We'll die. It's not good, right? So getting us to a point where we can do it is kind of the goal. But you don't even have to be building up. Just being able to incorporate it little by little each day, it's it's better for us overall for us to have some consistency and routine rather than like go all in or cold turkey, you know, in and out doing this, not doing it. It's kind of like the diet mentality, which unfortunately finds its way into like all parts of our life where it's not just about food. It's like we have diet mentality about shopping. I'm either spending all my money or none of my money, or I have this all or nothing about taking care of myself. I'm either doing all the self-care or it's a shit show and I don't even know what's happening. Like we, for some reason, our brain, I don't know. I'd love to, I need to, again, I haven't had time to research this and I've said this before, but like, I'd love to dig into why it is our brain is so drawn to this, like all or nothing black and white thinking. I don't really get it, but we all fall victim to it. And so I'm, I don't know, I'm very interested, but that's my advice. Little by little, we'll get there. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. 
And it says, hi, Katie, there have been a few times that my therapist has overstepped in our relationship. But instead of instead of bringing these things up with her, like I know I should, I actually find myself liking them, almost leaning into them because it makes me think that maybe I'm an exception to her. And maybe she just cares about me more than she quote unquote should. And I love that so much. Oh, don't we love validation, feeling accepted, so necessary. I used to be this way when I was younger with teachers and coaches too. Interesting. We have a pattern. Like those that noticed injuries and would pay attention to me, I would stop covering my injuries because I just wanted the attention from them. I honestly didn't think I was like this anymore. I thought it was a phase and I grew out of it as I was older. Ooh, we'll dig into that a little bit. So I'm frustrated that I find myself wanting my therapist to make exceptions for me and to quote unquote, like me the most. The thought of her prioritizing me or breaking a rule for me is the greatest feeling, but also makes me sick that I like it because I know it's wrong and unhelpful. Why am I like this? I am so ashamed and I want to stop having these thoughts and feelings, especially now I'm terrified they'll show up in other areas of my life like they did when I was younger. What can I do to stop this? P.S. Thanks for everything you do. You're awesome and so helpful. Oh, you're the best. Okay, this is great and very common. So nothing's wrong with you. Don't don't let those thoughts swirl in your head thinking you're weird and creepy and something's wrong. You said you're so ashamed. It's very common. And the reason for this is that often when we didn't grow up with a a good and healthy parent or caregiver, because it doesn't have to be necessarily a parent, it could be even a nanny or grandma, aunt, anybody like that, anybody who's going to take care of us. If we had that healthy foundation where they came when we cried and they soothed us and they listened to us and they, you know, cleaned up our boo-boos and put band-aids on them and did all the things that a parent is supposed to do, fed us when we're hungry, changed us when we're dirty, all that stuff, we wouldn't go out seeking another person to fill that void because that's kind of what's happening is we're in these relationships where we're really needing that validation and that support and that attention because we didn't get it in the way that we needed when we were younger and so in a way it's like our inner child is just craving it and we don't know how else to fulfill it without looking outward and so really what i would encourage you to do so that's kind of why it's happening is because we have this void and we haven't been able to fill it. And so I would encourage you to let your therapist know that this is happening. And yes, I know you just plugged your ears and were like, la la la, I didn't hear and I don't want to talk about it. But I really, really, really encourage you to at least write it down and give it to them. If you can email them in between sessions, I would encourage you to do that. If you can text or whatever, do that. But get it out and let her know that this is happening because what this, what I would even encourage you to say is something to the effect of, you know, hey, therapist, whatever her name is, I'm finding myself enjoying the attention that I get from you. And this is bringing up things from my past. I used to do this when it came to teachers and coaches. And I know that I crave this attention and I hate that I do, but I need to let you know, because when I feel like you're prioritizing me or I'm getting special treatment, I enjoy it so much and I just don't think it's healthy and I want to dig into why this is happening and how I can overcome it. I know you might not be able to say that, but you can rewind this back and listen again. You can type it out. You can write it out. You can read it in session and not even make eye contact. It's perfectly okay. But the real, what I believe the work you're going to have to do is, is that inner child work that I know we all hate, but there's always a child inside of us and we're acting out of them. Adults throw tantrums too, right? Adults need attention too. And we do all of that because our child us never got that. So then we're still doing the same things 
trying to get that need met. So like little child Katie, she throws tantrums and stomps her feet. She can be real stubborn. And I still do stuff like that, but that doesn't mean that it's healthy. And that means little child me needs to feel heard and understood. And so I have to talk to her slash me in a kind of compassionate way so that she feels that. Does that make sense? Inner child work can, can sound very complicated, but it's actually very simple. It's really changing the way we talk to ourselves and being there for us in the way that we wished maybe the adults in our life had been. And so bring this up with your therapist. Again, the inner child work is what's going to be most healing for you. I talk about it a ton in my new book that's coming out in September. I would encourage you to pick that up. I think it could be really helpful. But just getting this out and letting your therapist know this is happening and that you see this pattern is going to be such a game changer for you. I know it seems difficult up front to get that out into the world and to tell her that you're noticing this, but I'm here to tell you that doing that and and making that leap and being honest is going to be this huge, like, not, I don't want to say it's like a life-changing moment, but it's going to open the door to a whole new life for you. And I'm very excited for what can come out of this work because I believe that this is probably the key to a lot of things, like the root of the root of what has been causing you upset in your life in general. Um, so yeah, you got this. I know you can do it. Write it out, practice it, rewind back the tape and listen to what I said. Maybe some of those words work for you. Maybe they don't, but let's try to get that out and let them know. Now, there was a comment on this that said, I also wanted to ask how to overcome the opposite when your therapist is more overworked and tired. Ooh, I've noticed that in my last sessions and it makes me open up less and distance myself because I don't want to be a burden. This is not good. Is it normal to feel some kind of abandonment when this happens? Of course. What can I do as a patient if I realize that my therapist is doing his best, but he still looks super exhausted? I'm not going to lie. This is upsetting to me because your therapist should be taking care of themselves and I mean, I'm no better. I struggle to take care of myself too. I'm not saying that I don't, but if it's that bad that it's coming out in session, part of me wonders if we, I don't know. I mean, your therapist needs to take a vacation. It's not your problem. It's really your therapist's problem. And if they were coming to me, I'd be like, you need to take a sabbatical and get yourself together because you're burnt out. And I think a lot of us are feeling burnt out. I don't know what it is about this covid chaos and then you know it feels like a constant stressor i think all of us are kind of feeling a little burnt out but as a patient i would bring it up it's okay to say that to say hey you've seemed super exhausted and tired lately and it's making it hard for me to open up that's the truth and i feel like they kind of need to know that that's happening because they may not even realize in their complete exhaustion or whatever's going on in their life not even realize how they're coming across and that's, that's not good. And that's really all you can do because they have to, you, I mean, you can change therapists. I assume based on what you said, like you don't want to do that, but that would be another option. Change to a therapist that's taking care of themselves, unfortunately, because again, we can't clean their side of the street, right? He has to take care of himself and he's not, and we can't force him, but we can tell him this is coming up for us and we find it very difficult and they look very exhausted and hopefully he'll do something about it. Okay. Last comment on this question says, my therapist has called me her quote unquote poster child because I'm always challenging myself in therapy and trying to use the skills that I'm taught. That's amazing. You're working hard. I love it. And she's also said, I'm the only one of her patients that she was worried about telling that she's leaving the practice. Is this her way of saying she likes me or am I just confused? No, I think she's just proud of you. I don't like to think of therapists as liking or not liking her patients because that's not really what it is. It's more being proud of all the work you're doing and how much effort you're putting in. And she was probably, you know, worried to tell you she's leaving the practice because 
maybe the connection that you've had, the therapeutic relationship could be really strong. And with, with patients who feel very connected to their therapist, we, we already know which patients are not going to react well to things like that. And she could have been worried about that. And so that's because she cares for you like a good therapist does and wants you to do well. And, you know, is trying to encourage that by telling you, you know, how, how good you're doing. It's just like a teacher giving a little kid in school like five gold stars for their behavior at an A plus, right? You're doing well and she wants you to know that you're doing A plus work so that you continue to feel good about yourself and feel motivated. And it's probably part of the confidence building and compassion building that she's doing with you. And yeah, that, that's what I would say. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. And I'm going to get a little water says, hi, Katie, is it possible to dissociate for extended periods? Good question. I had a major triggering event last summer and the entire last year is a blur. It's almost as if someone else lived my life for the past 12 months. And now I'm left having to pick up all the pieces, almost as if I woke up from a very realistic dream, only it wasn't a dream. The past 13 months are just a blur of fragmented memories. Please help. Okay. I talk about this as a whole chapter in my new book about dissociation as a whole, because it's incredibly common and nobody, I mean, some people are talking about it now, but I feel like for so long, nobody talked about it. Now, if you're out there and you're like, Katie, what the hell is dissociation? Well, dissociation is essentially when our brain pulls the ripcord on our reality, meaning our nervous system gets so overwhelmed by what's going on. It could be a trauma, could be a trigger, like this person said they had a major triggering event. And our, our nervous system is always, by the way, our, we're always looking out into our environment, assessing for threat. Makes sense, right? Keeps us alive. I see a bear rustling the bushes, I run away. Problem solved. I am safe. But if it's doing that and we come across a trauma trigger or something that's just super overwhelming, maybe somebody yells at us in a store or somebody cuts us off, it just overwhelms our system as a way to prevent us from having more psychological damage, our brain pulls the ripcord and causes us to dissociate. And we can dissociate from, we can pull out of ourself, meaning depersonalization. So it's like I'm watching myself do things, or we can experience what is called derealization, which is when we're removed from environment. So it can be kind of like I'm watching a movie of my life play out. And they call that DPDR, depersonalization, derealization disorder. So we can have that. And that pulling the ripcord ah, is really protective. Dissociation is protective. It allows us to keep going forward. So you can say, hey, thanks brain and body for protecting me. But right now you're really causing me distress. I wish you wouldn't do that, right? And we have to find some ways. I have videos about grounding techniques and ways to stay out of dissociation. A lot of it's going to come down to processing trauma and having some resources and ways to soothe. But, you know, we'll get there one thing at a time. But to answer this question specifically, yes, you can dissociate for extended periods. I've had patients dissociate for years, for weeks, for hours, for months, all different amounts of time, depending on how upsetting their situation is, right? If I still feel completely overwhelmed and maxed out, my brain is still going to be pulling that ripcord. It's not going to let me come back down to earth, right? I'm not going to be able to be grounded again. It's like, it's not safe. Ah, keep, let's stay out here. Ooh. It's still coping. It's still doing that to protect us. And so 
Yes, it can happen. And the best way to get us out of it is honestly for us to feel at least neutral in our space. Now, for years, I always thought we had to feel safe. But my good uh, friend who's a trauma specialist, a psychologist, Dr. Alexa Altman, who I love very much, she let me know that for a lot of people, safe is just as triggering. And so for for uh, those of us who have complex trauma or s- struggle with PTSD, sometimes we just have to find a neutral feeling, some a space that feels not good or bad, and that will allow us to come back down or to stay more present or to feel okay enough to kind of work on that trauma. Does that make sense? So short answer, yes, we can dissociate for extended periods of time, and it'll be hard for us to get back to our reality and be grounded without some techniques or tools or resources. So I'd encourage you if you're able to reach out to a trauma specialist and start seeing someone and you can even watch my video, just get on YouTube and put in Katie Morton grounding and you'll find one with um, myself. And then there's also one with Alexa and I too, if you wanna watch a few. Final question, question number 10 says, hi Katie, can mental illnesses ever be a choice? Hmm, I often feel as if I've chosen my eating disorder. I don't know what it is about eating disorders, but a lot of my patients will say this. I think I'm doing this on purpose, but let's get it. Let's finish this question. It says, because when I was about 12 years old and really unhappy, I saw a movie about anorexia and somehow it quote unquote clicked in my head. And I decided that I wanted to get as sick as possible. I've had some problems before like OCD and was worried about my weight because my family was very critical about my body, but I still feel it was a conscious decision to start my eating disorder. Since then, I've never been able to get out of this, and I often feel guilty when I take up a place in a therapy or treatment center because I feel that my sickness is my fault. Can't So, can mental illnesses be a choice? And if so, why can't we stop? Okay, this is a great question. The truth is, um, some things can start out with a with a choice. Now, in this question, I don't actually think there was ever a choice to be made, but let's just, for, let's just let's dream a dream. Let's think of another example. Let's talk about drug addiction. Now, drug addiction is going to begin with us as people making a choice to do that drug, right? A friend asked if I wanted to, I don't know, do cocaine or shoot heroin. And I was like, sure. And I did it, right? So you could say, oh, they decided. And you know, now they're an addict and that's their fault. But I'm here to tell you that that's not really how it works. So even if Even if I right now was like, you know, I think I'm going to be anorexic. I'm not going to eat. I'm very critical about my body. I don't like this. Even if I decided to do that, first of all, I don't have the the gumption to continue because I, I don't, I just don't have it. Like I don't, I, I don't, being hungry only makes me angry and it makes it impossible for me to do my job. There's just too much of a price to pay and it just doesn't work for me and I just wouldn't do it, right? So even if I was like, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna try to make this choice, I would fall off because I don't have a thing that I'm trying to cope with and I don't have other ways to cope. You have to remember eating disorders, drug addiction, self-injury, those are coping skills for something bigger. There was a reason that it clicked for you. There's a reason it doesn't click for me. Like you just said, your family was very critical of your body. You also had some problems like OCD. You had all these other things going, things you needed to cope with. And the only thing you could think of because your family's so critical of your body and you were always worried about your weight, obviously it was an easy way for you to do, to like numb out or to manage. There's always a bigger thing going on 
the belief that any of us just choose to do something and have a mental illness, that's not, that there doesn't make any sense because if we were choosing to do it, then we could choose to stop. And just like you said, if so, why can't we stop? Well, the answer is we do not choose to have a mental illness. Mental illnesses are not a choice, unfortunately. So we cannot choose to stop. Just in the way that some people will become alcoholics or drug addicts and we do not. I can still choose to drink sometimes and I can choose to stop. But people who are alcoholics or drug addicts legitimately cannot stop until they're you know drunk or high and they even if they felt like shit the next day they're going to get up and do it again why because they can't stop because they have an illness and i think it's just the way that people try to talk about things or thinking that well i decided to do it that first time you know how many people have done drugs one time and not come back to it a lot of people because they don't have an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction that's just not who they are. That's just not how they're wired. That's just not, they're not looking for something to cope with or a way to cope with a bigger issue. Does that make sense? I think so often we feel like, well, I have all these choices in life. And sure, okay, if when you were younger, your family wasn't so critical of your body and they got you into therapy really early and you had a lot of coping skills and ways to manage your OCD-like symptoms, sure, you might not have had an eating disorder. But that's not how things played out. That's not what happened to you. And you needed to find another way to cope. And so you did. And one of the only ways that we often as kids, especially one of the only ways we can cope is by controlling our, our bodies because we can't control our environment because our parents do. We don't can't control school. We just have to go and there's classes we have to take. and We don't have much of a choice, right? There's so many things that we don't really have choices or independence on. And the one thing we do have independence on is our own body. And so it's no wonder that a lot of kids struggle with overeating, undereating, you know, drug and alcohol addiction, sex addiction, things like that. Um, because there's only, you know, we only have so many things that we can actually do to control. And so, I mean, so many things we can control. Sorry, I said that oddly. And yeah, and that's why we can't stop because you have a mental illness because there's something else going on we're trying to cope with. And it's the only thing that has done the trick right now. So you have every right to take up space in a therapy or treatment center. You have every right to get help because everybody there is just like you and they have the same mental illness and they're just looking for the same relief and the same recovery. And yeah, it's not a choice. Honestly, I kind of wish it was because then we could choose to stop, right? It'd be so much easier. Just like stop doing that thing. But unfortunately, that's not how it works. Okay, that's all we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast with a friend. Please leave a review, five stars. If you feel like it was five stars, please leave five stars. And please pre-order my book, Traumatize. It is available for pre-order now. And if you pre-order now, you get the first two chapters. I know, two whole chapters right away immediately. You just have to sign up in the link. You can look at my Instagram at Katie Morton, the link in the uh, my profile. There's, uh, I've do, been doing swipe ups in my stories all the time, but you can get those first two chapters immediately and get, get to reading right away. And then, you know, you get through those and the book will come out September 7th. So pre-order yours, please, please, please. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week and I will see you next time. Bye. Hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.